Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's The Wonky Show. This week, we taught the Education Minister, the old new minister, including an exclusive interview, the news on post-study work visas, we've got the new website from OFS, we've got Yes But Does It Correlate, and history returns. It's all coming up. The other thing, I mean, for, for anyone kind of uh, futurologist looking to know when we're going to get a response to the independent review of the TEF, which we know is, is with, with the minister right now and uh, the response to the OGA review and that sort of thing, um, he mentioned that these are very much on his desk and he respond in due course. And I believe he said that we would get a response to the OGA review in, uh, by the end of the winter. <laughs> so... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and as well as a sparkling new theme tune, this week we've assembled Team Wonky in a special podcast episode. So here to run, cycle and kayak over the highlands of higher education policy, we have three fabulous guests. In Watford, we have Wonky's Associate Editor, Jim Dickinson. Jim, give me your highlight of the week, please. Uh, if, if I'm being perfectly honest, Rachel, it's I was at Reading Station last night and it was it was space age. I haven't been for ages. It's like an airport and I had a Whopper meal and that was just perfect. Um, and in London, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. I think my highlight has to be yesterday afternoon when I wrote every single Wonkfest uh, session that we're planning on a, in individual post-it notes and started trying to map it into some kind of order and realised that we are literally going to have two days of absolutely jam-packed uh, content um, and it's going to be amazing. It made me super excited. And I can vouch we have completely run out of post-it notes in Team Wonky's office. Um, and I've, got, I've got loads in my suitcase, so I'll bring, I'll bring some in. Bought them at Reading Station, of course. Um, and in Birmingham, we have Wonky's founder and chief executive, Mark Leach. Mark, give me your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Rachel. I was lucky enough to chair a conference um, at the University of Manchester on Tuesday about um, universities engaging with local communities. And there was um, a lot of interesting stuff, but the best was um, hearing from about a dozen um, uh, individuals who work with universities, but they don't they, they don't work for the universities. They're just part of a community, but they de- they depend massively from um, small catering companies to um, social enterprises. Um, and it was incredibly humbling to uh, see the kind of real world impact um, of, of kind of universities engaging with their communities um, and just hear some incredibly human stories about the highs and lows of dealing with the sector, which can be very difficult when you're uh, when there's that kind of huge asymmetry between big institutions and individuals and, and small businesses and, and charities. Right. We start this week with a speech from Gavin Williamson, Secretary of State for Education. Mark, you were on the ground, as it were. So take us through this one. So this was Gavin Williamson, the new Secretary of State for Education, and his introduction to the higher education sector. This was his first big speech. Um, and in the room are um, the majority of vice chancellors in the country. Um, some send deputies, but it was an abs- absolutely packed room. Everyone wanted to hear from him. Um, he was obviously a very controversial defence secretary, um, big falling out over alleged leaks um, over the Huawei incident. Um, and he is very close to 
the Boris political machine in number 10. Um, and I think that uh, we, we weren't expecting a lot of policy meets um, and we didn't get any, but there were some interesting tidbits. And for me, it was definitely more about tone. So I think um, he's clearly got influence in Whitehall, uh, given that he is part of that, um, that political machine. Um, that's good. Uh, the downside means that he's not in DFE very much. He's not thinking a lot about... Um, uh, the future of education. I think his, his his agenda is Brexit and the election. So there's good and there's good and bad in that. And the speech itself was, um, well, it was obviously empty of um, of new announcements, but it did go through the usual tropes. Um, unconditional offers were the major theme, and the press is definitely picking up um, on that. Great inflation. Um, his personal story, uh, which is interesting, having come from um, University of Bradford, um, certainly interesting for an education secretary where they've been so uh, overrepresented by Oxbridge, can- Oxbridge graduates in the last uh, few decades. Um, so that was interesting. Um, also, odd, uh, quite an odd tone in, in some of it. Um, he was kind of speechifying, which always falls a bit flat when you're in an audience of vice chancellors because um sort of you know they're, they're kind of political in some ways but they're not they're, they're not a group that kind of is going to get rolled up and, and start clapping and cheering um so there was sort of lots of you know th- clauses in threes and um sort of building to crescendos and and things like that and it, and it sort of hits a room of um kind of slight stony silence so that's that was a little odd um and i, I think we'll obviously he'll obviously get into his groove um but generally in the room uh people were positive they were pleased that um he's largely continuing um the, uh, the 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 lines about things like unconditionals, rather than um, kind of driving that home even further. Um, and obviously, he wants to put pressure on the UK and OFS and their reviews around um, admissions that are going on at the moment. And today was obviously um, starting a gun on that. But he does seem pretty light on content and knowledge about these issues for now. But that could change. The thing I think that jumped out at me was, I mean, and Mark, Mark did say that unconditional offers and standards were, were a theme, and, and certainly that's how it's been written up in the media. And to a casual observer, you might think that, you know, Gavin Williamson stood up and said, uh, you know, universities need to need to pull their socks up. Actually, I mean, I, I read his tone as, as relatively um, benign, and certainly he was very positive about the, the work that, you know, and challenged universities to do more in access, you know, quite rightly. Um, he, he flagged, you know, the, the aspiration of this government to be global and the, you know, the role of universities in, in that. Um, and, but what really jumped to me is at the end is, is that he promised to fight universities' corner in government. Um, and that's not something we've had. I mean, you might get that from a universities minister, and you, you certainly will get that from a kind of, you know, a, a long-standing and experienced universities minister as they come, you know, become captured by the sector and, um, and so on. But you don't really get that from education secretaries. And um, it may have just been a throwaway line, but I think the sector can take quite a lot of heart from, from that. Uh, I mean, the bit I was want, uh, that I was really keen to read was how he framed the inevitable stuff on grade inflation and unconditional offers. And the speech itself was interesting. So he said, I want you to know that I will always speak up for your autonomy. I know it's what helps foster the brilliance of our teaching and research, but I also need to safeguard, I need to safeguard our reputation so that everyone knows they can trust the system. So the message he was putting out in the speech was, I hear your complaints about my predecessor where all of you lot were moaning that my predecessor overstepped the mark and started telling you what to do. And we know that some governing bodies wrote back to his predecessor and said, you can't stop meddling in offer making and and grade uh, setting and so on and so on. So I thought that line was interesting. But then I look at what he briefed to the press. So the Independent are running. Uh, He's going to write to the regulator on Monday with these new priorities. So he's going to do a new priorities letter for OFS on Monday, uh, where he'll, you know, 
uh, start making sure that the regulator cracks down on grade inflation and unconditional offers. So I thought what was interesting was someone has said to him, when you're in the room with VCs, assure them on autonomy. When you're talking to the press, do the usual framing around crackdown, regulation and so on. And do you know what? It's kind of a tactic that in the past was working where the university's minister would be nice to the sector and the secretary of state would do the crackdown stuff. I guess if he had to actually face VCs and he wanted to look them in the eye, he had to play along with a bit of that. But this kind of dual approach of saying, we recognise your autonomy, you're free, we want to work with you. The co-regulation framing that we might get in Wales or Scotland was on offering the speech. But then in the press, he's given them enough red meat to talk about power, crackdown, uh, universities failing and so on. And in the end, that, that that stuff bite comes to bite people on the backside. His, his huddle with the journalists at the end of the speech, which is what's driven these stories in the Independent and the Telegraph and such, was very chaotic. And it was very clear that he didn't understand the issues about unconditional offers. Um, and he was very much goaded by the journalists to start talking more more tough about um, getting the RFS to crack down and those kind of things. And he was he, he was quite out of his depth on, on these issues. And so kind of lent on um, the kind of the, the tough talk, um, but it was without any substance. And, and the journalists were relentless. Um, I had to run off to do my interview with Chris Kinmore, um, and they did manage to get that out of him, but I don't think that was the intention of the day. The other thing, I mean, for, for anyone kind of uh, futurologist looking to know when we're going to get a response to the independent review of the TEF, which we know is, is with, with the minister right now, and uh, the response to the Olga review and that sort of thing, um, he mentioned that these are very much on his desk and respond in due course, and I believe he said that we would get a response to the Olga review it, uh, by the end of the winter. <laughs> so... <laughs> And Can you specify a year? What winter? Well, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to buy a coat. Three, 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 three more very long books that we have to wait a long time for before we before we get a response. I well, I mean, the reality is that you know whether whether a general election or winter comes, uh, whichever is whichever is sooner. Because <laughs> well, but both, uh, both are coming. <laughs> yeah, both are coming. And the other thing, of course, I mean, he didn't, and he didn't sort of say, oh, you know, we will we very much take these recommendations, that we, you know, for Augur, he didn't say we'll take these recommendations on board. He said, you know, they made a contribution to our thinking. Um, and so very much not making any promises about how, um, how that might be taken forward. But that's balanced against um, some words about boosting FE and, and um, institutes of technology and that sort of thing. So it's all, you know, make of that what you will, really. Um, and also, of course, Chris Skidmore made a speech at the conference in Birmingham uh, where you are this week, Mark. And we got an exclusive interview with him so let's hear a bit of that so you please be back as minister yeah delighted um, i think as i said this would have been top of my uh, ucas application forms when it comes to uh, ministerial briefs and i'd started a lot of things that were in train so yeah, it's always you know one of the things at risk of being a minister is that you know once you've begun that process you know seeing potentially somebody else take it up be quite galling so now i've got things you know the smith review we've got to obviously trying to sort out you know horizon and erasmus and some of those challenges that i was i'm just keen to complete and go full circle politics changed quite a lot though since you were last in post and I think there's lots of disquiet in the sector about Dominic Cummings for lots of reasons so but his i used to work with Dominic is, Cummings okay. so um obviously in when the Conservatives were in opposition, uh, you know, I worked uh, with Dominic on education policy uh, and uh, we used to sit next to each other uh, in Port Cullis House. So I get on very well with him um, and he has you know, an ex- extreme interest in science and research. and uh, Some strong views. 
Well, I think you know, he's very keen to ensure that we become world leaders uh, in scientific research, and I'm determined to make sure that you know, the Prime Minister, when I saw him when he gave me back my job, said you know, he absolutely wants to you know, ensure that science is one of the priorities when it comes to science research innovation. And so this is great news, I think, for the sector, and we should welcome it, and we should you know, look to what ideas we can be putting forward, because I think there's you know, an open door at the moment to, to, to sort of look at what we can be doing um, you know, as part of that wider 2.4% challenge. And you want to see more basic research, you said this morning yes and you know, when it comes to we had the industrial strategy and some of the uh, industrial strategy challenge funds and uh, there has therefore been an imbalance in the overall percentages of what's you know has been investments gone up but basic research you know has, has lagged behind you know as a result and and trying to look at you know opportunities for where we could uh, be establishing new funds that will allow for uh blue skies uh, research to come forward you know. and on um, auger 7.5k fees how do you feel about it well i know that the secretary of state spoke in a speech about sort of you know formally responding to the auger review uh, and I, he's met with philip auger i think he said uh, the other week um you know, i've always had my own sort of personal views around their you know, potential proposals you know when it was the 3d sort of uh sort of offer the office i, I was strongly opposed to that and you know when it comes to yeah, uh, changing the balance of funding i think i was quite clear that you know making sure that we protect uh, our he institutions okay, and recognize what opportunities they've got for greater flexibility potentially offering fe courses for the future is something that i'm determined uh to to push again and you know julia's raised the issue of foundation years which i'm sure will be a you know an issue that will continue to be raised Sorry, and uh, i've seen the importance of foundation years and the value that they can find you know i was in huddersfield i saw someone from a care leave background who did a foundation degree who's now we've got a first and is now offer uh, full funding from ukri for a, for a phd uh, in, in physics so um you know making sure that we don't uh, threaten uh, those very issues that the Secretary of State spoke around are on access and participation and making sure that we recognise the foundation year has got a critical role in that. Like, like lowering fees might do, might threaten those things. I think overall, as I've spoken about, the sustainability of institutions is vital and you know, I wouldn't want to ever see a situation where uh, any changes uh, in the financial makeup of university might threaten a, a university's uh, institution's viabilities. And on Brexit, Operation Yellowhammer, are you uh, ready with the kind of red telephone to... So obviously, I, I was the uh, minister responsible yeah. for Brexit in the Department of Health. Um, so obviously, I was covering critical supply of medicines. I attended the EXO uh, committee for most of uh, most of August. Um, attending EXO and uh, you know, covering the health-related issues actually made me more reassured of, of the uh, contingency plans that are in place. And uh, you know, we used to have these Brexit meetings, you know, once a week. They're now every day. Uh, it means a rapid response to any challenges. And so. You know, I'm convinced that uh, the preparations you know, are absolutely the right ones. Um, you know, you've got to be able to set out worst-case scenarios to be able to prepare for them. What's your one message to universities, though, head towards a possible no deal? I believe that you know, we will be getting a deal, and that my message to universities is um, when it comes to you know, funding, you know, continue to reach out. Don't withdraw from the processes uh, of the Horizon 2020 grant scheme. Continue to build on those relationships because I will continue to want to protect them. And you know, the government's very clear that you know, we've made the guarantees, but you know, the offer's on the table from the EU for continued you know, participation. And uh, we've seen the Prime Minister who's willing to uh, make the investments necessary to protect uh, research funding. So don't withdraw from what you're already doing. Continue 
full pace ahead and, and we will be with you. So we had a good chat as we were walking around um, University of Birmingham campus um, this morning and I did get the sense that research and innovation are going to be the kind of majors of his kind of uh, his platform for the next few months, which makes sense in, a, in the Brexit context because the offer, I guess the public facing offer definitely needs to be about industrial strategy and growth and um, all of this and, and university's contribution to that. And there's a you know, million trade deals to, to, to sign as, as we know. So, um, um, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about from from that side of things than we have done from him in the past, uh, particularly if Gavin Williamson is is kind of taking care of that kind of traditional list of issues like unconditional offers, as, as we've been talking about. Um, he mentioned that uh, he wants to see more basic research funded. Um, and I, uh, as you heard, challenged him on um, the kind of the, the worries about uh, Dominic Cummings and his his very strong views about science. And um, Chris Goodwill seemed uh, fairly relaxed about that. But the uh, people particularly working research and science policy at that UK conference this week are not relaxed about it at all and very concerned um, that Cummings is about to start very seriously meddling in science policy. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the, the, the the speech, I think, was interesting. I mean, the speech was interesting for me because I was a bit naughty yesterday because uh, early on yesterday he tweeted that it, a picture of his laptop with the first line of the speech saying he had to write the rest. So I looped in some essay mails for him to try and help. Uh, <laughs> And in some ways, I mean, you know, the research stuff is in that. In some ways, all the things, it was a kind of classic Skidmore speech. It was really, as ever, it's really nice to see some nice lines on student unions in there. I think the thing that's interesting about the kind of period we've had um is that repeatedly there's actually not much in the speeches either from the secretary of state or from the minister on the student experience so that that remember that kind of period we had of literally we had ministers for students in the in the in the labor period and then sam jima turned up one day and said i will be the minister for students and kind of you know recooked that there's not a lot if if, if you like through student eyes not a lot that picks up the kind of day-to-day concerns of students and and what students are thinking saying and so on and i guess you know you might say well he was at university's uk conference team it's not like he was at an us national conference but it is interesting to me that one of the devices that's been used by politicians in recent history has been to in some way pit the interests of students against those of institutions and to some extent the naming of ofs was about that about trying to shift the interests of institutions off the agenda and the interests of students on but we haven't had much of that over the past kind of 18 months, two years. And, you know, there certainly wasn't much of that uh, either in Gavin or Chris's speeches today. Um, yeah, I, I, clock, I clocked the QR commitment. Um, or, well, it wasn't a commitment really, was it? It was a sort of... Um, he wants to see... Commitment he wants to the principle to see an of, of an increase yeah. In, yeah. In, in, in blue skies and quality-related research funding. Um, and that sort of sense that, um, that that is going to be what is going to help contribute to the 2.4% goal um, in research and development, rather than um, lots of kind of translational applied, kind of you know business focused sort of research. Um, and of course, depending what kind of institution you are, that will either be feel feel like a positive or a negative. Um, he did say that you know I'm firmly committed to the impact agenda, knowledge exchange, and hyphen the knowledge exchange framework. But that felt very much like a throwaway line, so that nobody could say, oh, are we are we killing the kef then? Um, it certainly didn't feel like this is a man who is very excited by uh, the the rollout of the knowledge exchange framework. So I think you know that. That's vaguely interesting. What's Blue Sky Research, Debbie? Um, Blue Sky Research is research that is not guided with necessarily um, a kind of particular goal in mind. It's just p- driven purely by interest. And the, one of the kind of 
you know, truisms, you know, well-evidenced true, true things about research is, is that um, you can't necessarily uh, pick winners to back. So you can't sort of say, oh, well, we're going to invest lots of money in this area of research because that's going to generate all the specific impact that is very predictable. You have to invest in, in research that's driven just by interest because lots of stuff may come out of it that, that, that is unexpected. So the example that is often referenced is graphene. Um, nobody oh, knew I've what, heard of that. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. Nobody, nobody knew what, 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 it was going to, what it was going to be. It was just some people sort of saying, oh, we could, we could do some stuff with this, this new material. Um, and it turned out to be sort of incredibly important. Um, part of I still don't have a graphene. I still don't have a graphene phone or a graphene. It's only a matter of time, Mark. It's only a matter of time. But one, think, but actually, one of the interesting things, of course, is, is that the people who do the blue skies research aren't always the people who are best placed to understand what the impact of it and the and the application of it might be. So, in terms of the research infrastructure, a lot of this is about really joining up the you know the, the blue skies and the applied and making sure that there, you know that there's a kind of real meaningful um you know at the system level and that's where the policy mm. challenge is rather than saying well we should fund more or less on either side i mean yeah Thank you need you a balance every, everyone I'm, accepts that i'm sure everyone all of our listeners uh, uh, understood that term it's a term i'd never heard before so thank you so I'm, much for i'm definitely going to get phone ins now so saying debbie i feel like you've mi- misrepresented <laughs> the uh, the nature of the research research environment which is probably true so po- apologies to our uh, no i'm sure that's uh, like expert, <laughs> expert listeners. thank you thank you uh, it was helpful for me and was there any other big news from the uh, conference Mark any other goss for us well one of, one of the big topics of conversation was uh, Mark Wolpert announcing his uh, his resignation from uh, or his retirement from uh, the role of chief exec of UK research and innovation which um, in, he, he's one of the kind of big beasts of the research landscape and this was uh, this was a bit of a, a kind of secret and and kind of slipped out this morning um, and that's interesting because uh, obviously UK arrival then have new leadership but the, the the thing that's fascinating for me around that is that um, there's a there's a heavy heavy rumor going around uh, Whitehall at the moment that John Kingman, the chair of UK Research Innovation, um, also speaking at Wongfest, incidentally, um, is uh, the Treasury's preferred candidate to be the new uh, Governor of the Bank of England. Um, which, uh, if if that comes off as a post, he's going to take up in in February, um, and obviously a huge job that. Um, but it would mean a total change of leadership at UKRI, uh, and given this context of um, a minister with a renewed focus on. Uh, research and science policy, um, that could take us in interesting directions, depending on um, who they find to, to, to lead that the kind of next next phase of things. And of course, we have the REF coming around the corner. Um, and we've got and the, um, the 2.4, 2.4 road, roadmap coming out in the autumn. Long, Absolutely. Long, the, the long-awaited, as we often say on the site, long-awaited roadmap. Mm-hmm. Debbie, what do you, um, do you, do you have well, anything to I think, this? I mean, well, I, I mean, I've, I've been... Um, so, so, so something else that's long awaited, of course, is Marie Leconte's book on political gossip and, um, and about the way that, um, also speaking at Wongfest, and the uh, way that uh, these rumours are sometimes fueled by um, people with agendas other than t- to kind of cause, cause uh, the thing itself to happen. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think I would be, and of course, not knowing really enough about, about why, why Treasury would be, would be kind of going for going for Sir John as the, as, as the candidate is, uh, but, but I, in, re- in reading the book, I've definitely learned to, to take these rumours with a heavy, heavy pinch of salt. You absolutely should take it with a pinch of salt, but it does seem, it does seem, um, I'd put money on this one, actually. I'd put money well, on what, what's interesting, I think, is sometimes the, the existence of the rumour is the thing that causes it to happen. Or causes wow. it not to happen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so deep. For, for, yeah, yeah, well, that's it. Read, read the book, you know. It's, well, <laughs> and hear more John, at John, It's jolly interesting. <laughs> In fact, we could perhaps we should bring those two sessions together and we could, uh, we could kind of... <laughs> <laughs> There's a rumour that I'll be a pilot of a, an A380 one day, so let's hope that manifests itself now. If, oh, yeah. if anyone from BAL is listening. Just make it so. Yeah. Uh, Jim, is there anything else that popped out of the conference from you or, or have you been uh, following closely? 
no and no. Actually, I've been, <laughs> I've been hitting refresh on Discover Uni, trying to, you know, Discover mm. Uni. And ah, failing, so. more of that later, of course. The, the other thing that we should probably um, give a mention to um, is the uh, Concordat to support the career development of researchers. Um, and because it's, it's, it's a genuinely um, really important piece of work and it brings the sector together in a way to, to try and um, enable early career researchers, early career researchers to have a positive experience um, in those uh, sort of postdoctoral short term appointments. Um, and in the, in the context of, of the, um, you know, the, the intention to grow the research base, it is um, going to be really important that the people who are employed to help drive that research base, uh, a lot of them will be at early career level and um, they need to be able to work across academia and business and to not be harassed in their roles and to be given opportunities for professional development. So I think, you know, I have no more analysis than that other than it's a really jolly good piece of work. Um, and Sophia Ropek, our associate editor, has written a really good piece about it on the site and I commend it to our listeners. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Steve West. I'm the Vice Chancellor of the University of the West of England here in Bristol. And uh, my blog uh, is really about us as a sector getting ready to receive thousands and thousands of new students. Um, Now, clearly coming to university is a fantastic opportunity and a great set of experiences. But for some of our students, it's also quite a stressful time. So what we've been doing at the university is creating a whole raft of new material to try and engage not just students, but families and staff in terms of how we can transition our new students into the university and settle them as fast as we possibly can. I think it's a piece that does need to be debated across the sector because I think the way in which students are now engaging with the universities is changing uh, and I hope that the material is of interest to people. It's on our website, you can gain access to it. At the end of the day, we want our students to thrive and flourish, we want to prepare them for the real world and in order to do that, we have to take care of their mental health and well-being as well as, of course, encouraging them to engage with their academic disciplines and study. I'm Tristan Healy. I'm the Chief Research Officer at the Institute of Student Employers. and We've just published some new research looking at what employers are thinking about the graduate labour market. What I've tried to argue in the piece that I've written for Wonky is that some of the auger reviews claims about how much of a panic um, employers are in about the overall um, graduate labour market is somewhat overblown. In general, employers are pretty positive about the graduates that they they get from universities. But, as Olga says, there are some problems, and they're particularly in areas around STEM, IT, these kinds of subjects. What I ask in the piece is whether a kind of fundamental root and branch change to higher education is really the best way to solve these problems or whether we might want more specific kinds of solutions to solve more specific problems. Now, good news, he's back. Every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent Academic Registrar Mike Ratcliffe, here is the new season of Hidden History of HE. One of the things that Nick Hillman has um, talked about is how we have a boarding school tradition in English higher education. So what is it that has made England, uh, and it's England rather than Scotland, uh, adopt this particular residential model? Now obviously this is deep in our history, um, but and, and most of it is just an accident. But it becomes an accident that becomes enshrined in policy. Oxford and Cambridge start off on their course to becoming the great universities that they are um, by wanting to be quite a long way away from the king and his courts and the bishop and their authority. So they 
quite happy being in small towns, uh, relatively well connected, but not so connected so that the person in charge of them could be, be there all the time. So that's a benefit to both those two universities and a benefit that they're not in a major city. Now, England only has one major city, but neither of those two universities are in London. Um, and it's quite clear that, that that's that's fine. So they set off in that model. And therefore, it's quite clear that if they are national universities, and as we've discussed before, they're quite good at killing off other people's attempts to have universities, um, then everyone has to travel to those universities. And they set up a term system so that you're only there for eight weeks and then you can go home again. And uh, whether or not we believe that people really went home in the summer to do the harvest. But the, the, the time you were there, you were in residence, um, either uh, in one of the colleges or in a hall, and therefore you, you had a, a kind of wraparound experience in terms of somebody looking after you the whole time, and that was part of the education that was on offer. So we ended up with this situation, though that's, that's a good thing, and that provides quite a strong uh, basis for uh, continuing education. Now, the commuter universities that come in the uh, 19th century push against that, places like UCL and later uh, Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool, uh, they might have small numbers of halls of residence, but they're generally, uh, most of their students are commuting, most of their students are coming in every day. But by the time we get after the... Um, First World War, there are two new bodies with a view on how higher education should be best organised. The new University Grants Committee um, is con uh, constructed of, of uh, the great and the good who come together and, and think deep thoughts about higher education should best be organised. They think residence is, is the best way of organising a higher education institution. And the other new body that has a view on these things is the National Union of Students. And it's the National Union of Students who also makes quite a lot of the running on residential life is best. And there are lots of reports written and, and snarky books about how the life of the commuting student is, is nothing like the life of the residential student. The residential student can go to debates and have dinners and, and live that kind of much broader, richer life, uh, and lots of reports saying how sad it is um, that uh, commuting students don't get to do that. And this is put into play in, in UGC action. The only university that UGC allowed to become a university between the wars is Reading. Reading has a very firm commitment to residence. Uh, it's much more unlike any of the other university colleges. It's very committed. Uh, it's, it's sponsored by Oxford. It's very committed to having a residential experience, and so it's the only one that gets through. So we get to the 50s. Uh, we're dealing with expansion of higher education, and there's a clear attempt to say the residential model is much better. Keel has started off on a residential model, but there's a, a, a grand committee uh, chaired by Niblet uh, that comes together and says, look, this is, this is where we should be going. We want to avoid the nine-to-five mentality, which is the great enemy of university education. Um, and therefore, the UGC committed to provide capital funds to build residences. So this is great because, of course... Um, one of the things it tried to do was set out clear specifications. You couldn't build grander halls of residence uh, than the UGC would give you money for. You had to build them. So if you um, spend your time uh, trolling around the country going to 1950s and 60s halls of residence, you will find the square meterage is pretty much the same everywhere you go. The same little basin in the corner of the room, uh, the same wardrobe, uh, the same vanishingly small bed on which to sleep. You can't build bigger than the UGC will give you money for, even if you've actually got the cash to do it. So there's a, a, a grand specification. And this comes from a very egalitarian sense. Everyone gets the same kind of accommodation. And those universities that um, have got different kinds of accommodation have to deal with this. One of the reasons that some of those universities got great accommodation is that uh, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, one of the ways that Oxford and Cambridge tried to attract better off students was by building small palaces for them to live in. So if you go around and you look at some of the great buildings that you know, we all buy postcards of, it's because they built 
buildings to look like the palaces uh, and great country houses that the, these uh, uh, sons of the gentry had come out of. And so they built them to make you know, very familiar, you know, the same kind of panelling, same kind of high rooms, the same kind of you know, um, classical architecture. But there's a sense that we should have this kind of utilitarian uh, view as we go forward. So we then obviously have uh, the UGC funding these kinds of things. Uh, eventually, when the sector comes together, the polytechnics have a great rush to try and deal with building um, uh, residences, um, as many of which now have to come off uh, the balance sheet because Hefke decides we're not building residences. Mostly, I assume, because um, there's no way they could have afforded to pay for the polytechnics to have all of this stuff and to balance out the sector, and therefore they all come off balance sheet. Now, that's probably a progenitor of another problem, uh, as now we have all these accommodation blocks off residence, we, you know, financing has become problematic. The other thing that's, of course, allowed to happen now is that people are now back in the business, just as they were in the 18th century, of building luxury accommodation blocks. So now we have a wonderful tradition uh, restarting uh, again that just as... Um, uh, Dean Aldrich built grand blocks for people uh, to come to Oxford. Now they're building grand blocks for people to go to, to London and, and live in swanky things with cinemas and gyms and swimming pools and concierge services and all the rest of these kind of things. So we're we're kind of back where we were before. So um, Howard Silver wrote about this uh, before um, this kind of span off where people were still using PFI rather than just completely outsourcing it. And he was concerned that we we're abandoning a tradition of residences, that we no longer see them in an educational context, only as essential for competitive recruitment. And he wrote that in 2007. And I think that's kind of where we are now. So the concern about we've ended up with this residential model, um, but we probably let slip the controls that we once had over it. Now, next up, the news this week that international students will be allowed to stay in the UK for two years after graduation to work under new proposals announced by the Home Office. The move reverses a decision made in 2012 by then Home Secretary Theresa May that forced overseas students to leave just four months after they'd finished their degree. So, Debbie, what is the story here? Well, this uh, is really, I think, unalloyed good news. This is something that the sector has been campaigning on for nearly a decade. It's been the thing that everyone has been able to agree on is, is that the, the removal of the post-study work uh, entitlement for international students on Tier 4 visas um, really was very much an own goal for, for the government and, uh, and, and, and has... Uh, severely damaged uh, the ability of UK universities to recruit international students. That's not to say that numbers have been plummeting, but it's certainly it's something that's been raised, for example, by the Indian government um, in discussions about future trade deals. And I think there's kind of a few points to make about this. One is that one is, is about, of course, we don't have the detail and the specifics. And given the state of politics right now, I think um, you know vice chancellors and and heads heads of international uh, units will, will not probably rest easy until we've actually got got this done in black and white with with new Home Office guidance. So you know, and, and, and of course anything could happen. But there does seem to be political consensus about the value of introducing something um, that will enable international students to stay in the UK, to look for work, to build their connections and, and so on and so forth. Um, the other thing, of course, is, is this is very much billed as being part of you know, Britain's brand new global outlook post-Brexit. And it did cross my mind that um, you know, this, is a, this, this may actually be a necessary move um, in terms of thinking about how we're going to be negotiating trading relationships in the future with countries like India, I suspect that being seen to be open for business in terms of international recruitment and, and students coming here and being able to sort of stay for a reasonable amount of time um, is going to be an important aspect of um, building building relationships with these countries that we're going to need to be doing in a post-Brexit landscape. Uh, it's obviously good news. Uh, we've obviously been expecting it for some time. I, I do think, you know, more broadly, the idea that the Home Office will change its 
it's what I would call kind of repeated day-to-day behaviours of hostility are probably, you know, we're probably not there. And some of that manifests itself in the, uh, you know, regulations about attendance monitoring. Some of that manifests itself in collaborations with the Department for Health over how much international students have to pay to access the NHS and so on and so on. So although it's a piece of good news that will reverberate around the world, and we've already picked up that it's, you know, a piece of good news that's being repeated by lots of international press, it's being well received, that that, that, that kind of learned behaviour of the Home Office to be hostile is is going to be much harder to shift if indeed it is the intention of ministers to shift it. The, the other thing I've been thinking about a lot is in lots of towns and cities around the country, the cost of student accommodation is very high and that's about undersupply and high demand. And if relatively suddenly a large number of international students are adding to the students and graduates that are trying to find accommodation in some of our towns and cities around the country, that creates even more pressure uh, and even more cost and even more of that problem in terms of town gang relations, housing costs and so on. And I do think, you know, if there's a couple of years before this gets implemented, we ought to sit down and think as a sector about making sure that there is, you know, sufficient capacity to, you know, actually house uh, what we want, which is a large number of international students taking up the offer. So uh, in Gavin Williamson's speech this morning, he very much framed this as a kind of part of the quid pro quo. So his, his exact words, I wrote it down because it, it was almost kind of poetic the way he said it he said i've given you what you asked for what you wanted most i see this as a deal between us and you um and it sounded like the start of a of a poem almost um but he um or a, he or a gangster movie yeah, or right? a gangster movie yeah yeah quite um and and he he clearly sees that as, as part of the quid pro quo which lets him then say you know now we've got to uh, get tough on um unconditional offers standards um access and, and everything else so um, i suspect it's not going to be the last time we hear him roll this out as you know a bit of the uh, uh example of the carrot now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is one Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Welcome back to another season of Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that would never mislead the Queen or anybody else. Because it's all wonky stuff on the podcast this week, I thought we'd get technical. OFS releases a measure of how well paid a head of provider is compared to the rest of their staff as a ratio. What I'm asking is whether there's a relationship between this and how quickly the provider would run out of money if it stopped getting any. The number of days of net liquidity. So, do providers that could go under in the blink of an eye pay their VCs and principals loads more than the rest of their staff? Does it correlate? I think it probably does correlate because if if it if it's if it's pay ratio against net liquidity that it that is the indication of a strength of an institution, which is also probably an indication of the size of the institution. So I'm going to say yes, it does correlate. I, I totally agree with Debbie. I think that um, yeah, counterintuitively, the most high-paid vice chancellors will be in those biggest universities, which have kind of the most amount of money flowing through them. Um, and as a result, um, may not have as much liquidity as uh, uh, as you would expect. Um, like uh, famously, UCL and Michael Arthur saying they've only got you know two days, two weeks before we go bust at any point. I think the changing ways in which universities are financed and the sort of covenants that are on some bonds and loans means that just looking at net liquidity is quite an old-fashioned way of looking at that kind of wider concept. And the result of all that is that we this absolutely doesn't correlate and it's much more chaotic if we're only looking at net liquidity. 
I'm afraid it doesn't. R squared is 0.0005, so there's no relationship at all. It's some fun data, though. I've plotted total institutional income for the same year as the size of the markers on the graph. There's even less correlation with that. We've tried on a few of these attempts to figure out a decent predictor for VC pay. If anyone has any ideas, please do write in. Our data is for the latest available year, and the use of OFS data means the plot is England only. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Next up, we're going to discover uni, but first we wanted to let you know that Wonkfest is coming. Yes, now at a brand new venue, the most exciting event in the UK HE calendar is back for its third year. We are witnessing the most chaotic political moment in a generation. Now more than ever, we must understand how we fit into the wider world, how to make the case for our institutions, how to meet the needs of our many different communities and stakeholders, and how we prepare to tackle local, national and global challenges. Well, at Wonkfest, we bring the sector together to tackle some of these issues and share the great challenge of navigating what lies ahead. We have two non-stop days of ideas, new thinking, analysis and debate. You can choose what to focus on and build an experience that will be the most valuable for your professional role and organisation. The sessions range from headline plenaries to masterclasses and from interactive workshops to fireside chats. You will never be too far away from a new idea or useful insights. Old colleagues and many new ones yet to be made from different and unexpected parts of university life. With an abundance of interesting things to do and see, we honestly think it will be the most valuable two days out of the office that you'll have all year. And if you are a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. The past two years have sold out, so head to wonkfest.co.uk to book your tickets and find out more. We cannot wait to see you there. And finally, this week, the OFS has launched its new website, Discover Uni. And Jim, I think you've been logging on. What, what, is your, <laughs> what, is your, what are your views so far, please, Jim? <laughs> Right, so I mean, lots, lots, lots of websites, lots of website launches suffer from this. Yeah, so I've been trying all morning to get on. I got on about five minutes ago whilst you were all talking about research, um, and, but I only got on. So it's supposed to be hosted on gov.uk. I don't know whether it's now being temporarily hosted on a, a .org.uk domain, but they put a link up to say the Discover Uni website has now launched at discoveruni.org.uk, but. The, the link was broken and it was a badly formatted link so I had to copy the actual text and go in and do you know what do you know what it is it's uni stats but with some extra fairly basic information about universities university life university costs and so on and I'm not necessarily convinced that it therefore certainly in this iteration matches the ambitions for the new information advice and guidance strategy from OFS that OFS had when it kind of discussed this and, and we saw the board paper about this a year ago in fact quite the opposite and and to some extent I think you know a national organization that isn't in the commercial space that has to treat providers fairly that has a duty to promote apprenticeships and so on its information is going to be a bit duller and a bit more vanilla than some of the commercial competitors but just taking the old Unistats database and and loading on top a kind of Wikipedia version of what HE is in in, in the UK definitely doesn't meet the ambitions that were were originally set for the project so so maybe a, a iteration two and iteration three are going to blow our mind <laughs> i cannot wait mark debbie have you had a chance to have a look at this yet 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of I'm sort of playing playing with the um, the choice architecture in the site. So there's some stuff that you can go in and you can kind of answer questions about what you're interested in that can help you to kind of narrow your search. So uh, you know, they've obviously had a, had us think about the ways into information. But I mean, my feeling on this is exactly the same as it was um, when I was part of the Hefke review of public information back in 20, 20 something or other, 2012 maybe. Um, and I just felt at the time that it wasn't the view of the funding council and the regulator to try and pr provide information that is student facing because other people do it better. And you know, absolutely, you know, validate the information, ensure that the right information is collected, make sure that it is of a very high quality, and then hand it to people who know what they're doing to present it in such a way as it's going to engage students. And I think this is, you know, I haven't had a lot of time with the, with the website. I, I can't speak to the kind of specifics of it. I just don't think that this is a space that, you know, the OFS really does have plenty on its plate. And being a provider of public information, I just don't think it's a very good thing that, you know, I, I just don't think it's a good use of its time. It's also an odd, odd time of year to launch it. Um, it seems like it should have had more time in beta before coming at a point where um, you know there'd be peak interest in in, in choosing uh, finding out information about applying applying to uni. But um, it's uh, as Jim said. I mean, for now, the commercial competitors are doing it much more much nicer and much more attractively and um, much more interestingly. So whatever happened to the apps? Do you remember the maps where it was like? Do you like being outside? Do you should you go to like... uni in somewhere without a roof. <laughs> yeah, basically. What happened to those? Those were fun. I remember playing with them. They were quite quite extraordinary. You know, oh, yeah, it turned the, out I needed the, to be a vet. The app competition, yeah. The app competition. I'll tell you what it's... I would say about Discover Uni. Please do. Uh, apart from the use of the word uni rather than university, which is all mm. a bit youth, innit? Um, uh, and the kind of branding, which looks like, you know, a research institute on the edge of a campus that the undergraduates <laughs> aren't allowed to visit. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do think what's interesting is it's actually genuinely quite hard to get to information about an institution and we do know from research that some students are much more focused on going to a particular institution or a particular bit of geography and then aren't that bothered about which course they end up on but all of the architecture in the site is focused around choosing a course and getting to course information which is strange not least because of course we don't have course level information for lots of this stuff you know TEF itself for example is absolutely not course information at this point and even if it was subject level wouldn't be course level in the same way that you know the uni stats databases so i just think that's that is strange uh, and certainly if you're using this as a tool to try and get information on institutions rather than plowing through hesa spreadsheets and that's one of the you know the, the 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 uses of uni stats that certainly journalists and the public and you know different people made of it it's a bit of a pain Jim, are you saying they're doing that on purpose? I can't, I, I can't tell whether you're making a comment on that or whether you think it's actually uh, uh, something that the OFS has built in to kind of d detract from people just saying, right, well, I want to go to X because it's got X near it and it's near XYZ. I mean, it is what it is and we are where we are. So that is about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find the links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments on today's episode. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, um, to Jim, to Debbie and to Mark and everyone at Team Wonky for making this show happen. And of course, you for listening. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.